All right, so good morning, and so like we often like to say, it's a good day, and the reason it's a good day is because it's a new day, and if, a new, if it's a new day, then that means it, there are new mercies. Thank you so much. So one of today's new mercies, and there are several, one of today's new mercies is that the weather finally broke, and it's not in the 90s, uh, so fall is finally here right on cue, October 6th. Um, exactly when fall, like, fall is supposed to begin, right? It should have started like three weeks ago, but I'm, I'm grateful that it's here finally. Another new mercy is that we're continuing on in our sermon series that's entitled Home. Uh, what we've done here over the last few weeks is that uh, we've talked about our home community, that it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to make where we live a better home community for those who live around us. We've talked about God being our home. He's to be our dwelling place, our fortress, our refuge. He invites us to make him our home. We've talked about our church. Our church is to be a good home, a, a church family, a faith family where we crew up with one another as apparently we're going to start saying from here on out. That sounds good to me. So today we're actually going to be talking about uh, home proper in the sense of what we typically think of when we hear the word home. We're going to actually talk today about marriage. So if you have your Bible with you, I always hope you do, open up to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It's between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. And while you are turning to Colossians thir- uh, chapter 3, did I say 33? Did I really say Colossians? I did go to seminary, y'all. Like, I know there's not three, 33 chapters in Colossians. Colossians 3. And while you're turning there, we're going to show a little video for your viewing pleasure. Y'all look like you've never seen that movie. Is there a single person besides me in the room that's seen that movie? Oh, my word. All right. Well, I'm a sci-fi geek. That's fine. That's okay. That is the opening scene to the movie Predators. That is the first movie, the, the first minute of that movie. It begins with that. It is one of those movies that begins with the action right off the get-go. It is a particularly intense. If you're at the movie theater watching that on the big screen, like you're sitting there, you just sat down, the previews are over, and that's how it begins. Just like that. And then later in the movie, you kind of find out that the guy wakes up in free fall. He didn't know how he got there. All he remembered was he was at home in bed. And next thing he knows, he's falling from the sky. Doesn't know how he got there. Doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is the ground is getting closer at a pretty quick pace. And, and I wanted to show that because the opening scene of that movie is quite often what it's like to be a pastor. <laughs> People constantly, and it's right, you should, right, because this is my role in the world. People come to me, and it's like, I was okay, everything was fine, and next thing I know, I'm in free fall. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got here, but my life is in crisis. So for a pastor, it's very often like, la, 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 and someone sits up and, ah, like that's, that's what it's like. And it's not just individuals that find themselves in that situation. It's couples, marriages, 
quite often are like that. We were in love, and everything was fine and dandy, and, and we were like sharing our dreams one day, and the next day, kaboom, our marriage is in free fall. Will you please help? And I'm like chewing popcorn. Like, <laughs> I, I, hope, I, I hope you have a parachute. I'm not that harsh, right? I, I do care. That's not rare that, that people approach me or that marriages approach me, and it's like we're in crisis, free fall. We're, we're, it's a predator's opening scene. I mean, it's, it's not that it's rare. It's actually common that most people in their marriage will eventually at some point find themselves in, in a moment like that, a season like that. One of the great blessings that I have as a pastor is that I get to officiate weddings. And I always say that I have the best seat in the house. Like I'm up there with the couple and, and I get to watch them as two people become one. And I get to say those words, you know, what, what God has brought together, may no man put asunder. And I now pronounce to you as husband and wife. And for the first time in public, Mr. and Mrs. And, and the two, you know, they grab hands and they go up the aisle and they're prancing in the meadow as they're doing so, right? It's like a beautiful thing. As they go hand in hand and they're going to start their life together. It's just really cool to get to be up there like in the middle of that. And in that moment, it's, it's wonderful, right? It's love is in the air. Birds are chirping. Skittles are falling out of rainbows. It's just like the best. And simultaneously in that best kind of moment, you know what else is going on? Ignorance. Ignorance is bliss because that couple, as they go hand in hand up the aisle, they have no idea how hard it's going to get. And so I do premarital counseling with every couple that I marry. I go to great lengths to explain just how utterly difficult marriage is going to be. I want them to enter into marriage sober-minded. I want them to know that they're going to face major problems in their life and that most of the problems and the worst ones are not going to come because they lost a job or because of health issues. Most of them are going to come because of them, right? They're going to hurt each other and disappoint each other and annoy each other. It's all the each other, right? It's, a, it's just the tension, the fighting. And so I do this with every couple that I do premarital counseling for, and every time it's the same, they don't believe me. They don't believe me because they're in love. They're in love. And so, no, we're perfect for one another. We'll never fight, right, snookums? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Uh, And it's, it's good for a while. A week, a month, a year, 10 years, however long. But all too often, at some point, predators opening scene. Ah! Falling from the sky. Marriage is in crisis. Now, not every marriage finds themselves in an opening scene like that. But every marriage struggles greatly. Like every marriage. It is hard. Like, it's not easy. Can I get an amen from any married folk? Okay. 
<laughs> Some of you said that a little too boldly, right? <laughs> I, there's nothing easy about it. And the fact is that marriage is a cauldron. It is a hot, steaming pot of toil and trouble. I love you. <laughs> uh, it just is. Right? It's a pressure cooker. It's a pressure <laughs> It's messy, and it can't be any other way. How could it possibly be anything other than the hardest thing you ever do? What is marriage? Two sinners, two highly flawed, immoral people coming together in close proximity, living together in a fallen and broken world. You should cherish and rejoice that every moment is just not God-awfulness. Because that's what we should expect. We're sinners getting married. And, and so there is hope. There, there, there is hope in all of that. God invented marriage. He gave it to us as a gift. It, it's a new mercy. Marriage is one of God's new mercies to us. And he does desire for us to have a good marriage. By good marriage, I don't mean simply that you avoid crisis, free fall moments. By good marriage, I mean a thriving, healthy peaceful marriage that is good for the husband and good for the wife where the gospel is displayed and that's lived for the glory of God. And so that is what God desires in our marriage. We just simply have to take some steps toward that because it doesn't happen by accident or randomly or automatically. We all have to take steps in that direction. And so, quite honestly, we should do an entire series, like sermon series on marriage. And I kid you not, I could preach for three straight months on the topic. And I think we could all need it. And when I was done with the three months, we could do it all over again. Because we need it that much. And we need the constant reminder and the, the therapy of it, the counseling, the discipleship. Uh, but I'm just going to preach on this topic today. I do hope and pray that today is helpful. So whether your marriage is in a good spot, a good season, whether your marriage is in a tough season, whether you're single and one day hope to get married, like I, whatever, I just, I hope that this is instructive and helpful. And much of this, while it clearly I'm going to apply specifically to marriage, all of this in some form actually relates to all relationships, you know. So um, it's going to be fire hydrant Sunday. So just you're gonna have to listen to this one online again to get to get the all of it because you're gonna miss it i'm just gonna talk really fast colossians chapter 3 verse 18 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the lord so there's that word submit it's a word that rubs people the wrong way. They get all bent out of shape when we hear the word submit what you mean submit to my husband What's, what, what kind of talk is that? What kind of caveman, antiquated, backwards, backwards kind of talk is that? Submit. Have you met my husband? Like, submit to them, him, that person. And, and honestly, like, those who kind of react very negatively to the word submit is because they don't understand what the Bible clearly teaches so what the Bible is clear about, and what I want to be absolutely crystal clear about, is that men and women are both equal. Follow? Men and women, male and female, 
are created both in the image and the likeness of God. We are equally loved by God, and so the same blood of Jesus that saves a man, that same blood saves a woman. In Christ, we have equal dignity and equal standing before God. We are equals. One is not better. One is not lesser. One is not superior. One is not inferior. We are equals. Have I been clear? Equality does not mean sameness, so I know that in our world, it gets all messed up. We try to call like something that's equal same. Well, no, men and women are equals, but that doesn't mean same because there's a difference between men and women, male and female. But that's a topic for another day. Today, I just want to actually just camp out on that thought. We are equals before God. So I want to continue to unpack what that means. To submit is on par with being a helper or a helpmate. So in Genesis chapter 2, specifically in verse 18, Genesis 2.18, Eve, the first woman, is presented to her husband. She's married to Adam, the first man, and Eve in 2.18 is referred to as a helper or a helpmate. Well, Rick, that doesn't help because that sounds condescending too. That sounds belittling. What do you mean I'm just a helper? Well, it's absolutely not condescending, and it's not belittling in the least bit. Because in Psalm 54, verse 4, it says, Behold, God is my, what does the verse say? My helper. Is God lesser than us? Is God inferior to any of us? No. The fact that he's a helper means that he's loving To be a helper and to submit is to be loving. It's all it means. God the Son, Jesus Christ, submitted to God the Father. The Son is not lesser than the Father. The Son is not inferior to the Father. They're actually equals, co-members of the Godhead, the Trinity. But the fact that the son submitted to the father simply means that he loves the father. And so he submitted to the will of the father. Jesus comes to earth and he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross for us, right? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. So he went to the cross for us, to serve us, to help us. He submitted himself to death. Why? Because he's lesser than us? No, Jesus is God. Because he's inferior to us? Clearly not. The fact that he submitted to us in that regard means that he what? Loves us. That he loves us. So wives, here's here's the take home from this point. When God says submit to your husband or be a helper, what he's uniquely doing with you that he's not doing with men, he's, he's sharing a very unique divine title of his with you. He's saying, imitate me in this very special way that men don't get to. Imitate me. Imitate me. Love. Love in this unique sense. Does that make sense? There's nothing offensive about that, right? Is is love truly, really offensive? Like, hey, love your husband. Is that offensive? No. So when you see the word submit to your husband or be a helper, don't be offended. God's just calling you to love. Now, that being said, I, I know that's hard 
because every lady in here who is married is, in fact, married to a jerk. Every lady who's here who is married is married to a meathead. And it doesn't help that we look like melted ice cream while we're at it, <laughs> most of us. You, mar- you married a sinner. You know that, right? When you said, I do, you purposely, intentionally married a flawed individual. So how in the world do you love him and submit and are a helper? you got to look at that verse again, Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands. And here's the important part. As is fitting in the Lord. See, the thing is here that this is not so much about submitting to a man as much as it is about submitting to God. That's what this is about. You don't submit to your husband because your husband is good. You submit to your husband because God is good. So here's some practical steps. Number one, wives, every day pray for your husband. Pray for your husband, that that God would lead him and guide him and give him wisdom and discernment. So pray for your husband. Number two, be a godly helper. If, If you're a wife in here and your husband's in the room, turn right now and look at your husband. Look at him. Look at him. Look at me. Look at your husband. We clearly, very clearly need help. Don't, do we not? Look at him. Your husband's in dire need of crucial help, the kind of help that only you can provide because God is the one who gave you to be that special individual in his life. So be a good helper, which does not mean be passive. Do not be a doormat. That is not being a good helper. Speak truth in grace. Speak up. Do it respectfully. Man, there's nothing bigger than the male ego and nothing more fragile. So be nice when when you need to speak. Be respectful. A a guy does not think that he's loved unless he feels respected. You got to know that. All right? So do it nicely. Be a good helper. Provide counsel because we need it. Number three, practice consensus. You will absolutely have arguments in your marriage. You're going to have disagreement. So the washer goes out. Do we buy the $600 one or the $1,200 one? Those are mutually exclusive. You can't buy both at the same time, right? You need one, so it's going to be one or the other. So when there's a disagreement, I would say humble yourself and say, all right, honey, what you say. I don't agree. Maybe we should do that one, but... I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to make a mountain out of a molehill ultimately, and you're the one that's going to have to pay account for that. So practice, be a peacemaker in those situations. Because really this is ultimately about trust. God has said do this, like submit, be a helper, love. So trust God in it. It's about trusting the Lord. So if you want a good marriage, let your relationship with your husband reflect your relationship with God. That's what this is about. Husbands, your turn. And because I'm a dude, I get to really crush some toes now. I got to be nice with the ladies because I have to. So, all right, husbands, your turn. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with 
them. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, actually give us extra clarity or insight as to what that means. So those verses say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's the thing. Jesus loves us. And that's not sentiment. It is selfless, sacrificial love, which is ultimately the only kind of love that there really is. So Jesus sacrificed himself. He laid his life down on the cross for you to remove your sin from you, like the guilt and the shame and the burden off of you. That's love. He laid down his life to remove that from you to purchase you out of debt so that you may belong to him. He gave his life to cleanse you or wash you of your sin so that you may receive new garments. So he did it to remove your sin garments, your grave clothes, and then bestow upon you his righteousness, his righteous robes. And in so doing, to prepare us for one day to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Sound good? He loves us like that. He died to make us right in his eyes. He gave his life to sanctify us, not just save us, to sanctify us to be holy, spotless, and blameless, and presented before him. So husbands, we are to love our wives, not just in the same manner, but for the same reason as Jesus loves us. So you know what? Flowers are nice. And date nights are fine. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's the extent of the display of our love, I would say that's really not love. And that's really a cheap, a cheap imposter of it. We're called husbands to love our wives with a sacrificial love in order to do what is in our wives' best interest. Which does not mean to pander or cater to every want. It means leading in such a way that sometimes we say, honey, we have to go this way and I can't do that because this is what's best for you and our marriage and our family. So sometimes it means just being an oak and not just catering and catering and catering, pandering and pandering and pandering, coddling, 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 spoiling, spoiling, spoiling. It means being a leader. What's in our wife's best interest, husbands? That she become more like Jesus. That she would be less sinful. That she would be more like Christ. So our sacrifice in this world, why, yes, we get up early and you go to work and, and, and you do all of that and you provide food, absolutely. But ultimately, what your wife needs more is for God to use you in her life so that she becomes more like Christ. That's our God-given role. I'm going to go this far. Guys, you can work and you can, make, you can make bank and be really successful and have the retirement account and have multiple vacation homes and go on elaborate vacations and buy your wife jewelry and have everything you want. And you can even have the kind of marriage where you don't fight and it's like the, the, the picket fence around it and the, and the 2.5 kids and the golden retrievers running around. It could be like paradise, 
And if your wife is not more like Jesus because of you, you have not done your job. The reason God gave you your wife was to use you to make your wife more like Christ. I thought I was just getting married so I could have guilt-free sex. I just didn't want to be home alone anymore. I thought it would be good to have combined income. I don't know why it sounds country, but. (laughs) Those are great things. I'm not saying those aren't good things. Those are wonderful things. Those are blessings. But the reason God gave you your bride was so that your bride would be more like Jesus. That's the job. That's the role of a husband. And it's hard, right? It's hard not because, not only because it's hard, it's hard because our wife makes it hard. Because she ain't perfect. Because she do nag. And she can say some biting, horrible things that crush your soul. Not you, ever. Jamie beats me, y'all. I got <laughs> I'm intimidated. No, is it not true? Like, uh, like we, our wives can say some things. Like, uh, uh, this is truth. You know how, how a parent can, like, hurt a child? And there's some awful hurt that a parent can do a child. I believe this. There's no more hurt that a man can have that comes at the, at the, from his wife. A wife holds something over a husband like she can crush him with one word, devastate, emasculate, might as well castrate at times. So our wives can make it difficult. And what I would say or remind you of is that you married a sinner. You purposely, intentionally went and bought a ring. And asked a sinner to spend the rest of their life with you. So I would ask you and recommend that you have a right expectation of your wife. Don't be shocked when she sins against you. Celebrate the moment she doesn't. So husbands, here's a few points for you. Pray for your wife daily. Every day, pray for her heart and her mind, her thinking, her emotions. Pray for her, for her energy, all of that. Be a servant leader. Don't be passive. Actually step up and lead. Survey your marriage. What does my marriage need? What does my wife need? Not necessarily want. What does she need? What's in her best interest? Then push forward in that direction and lead her kindly, gently, graciously. Disciple your wife. Actually, talk about Jesus. Talk about the Bible. Do Bible study together. Go to Bible study together. Make her more like Christ. Help her to become more like Christ. Because at the end of the day, this is about loving God. It's secondarily about loving our wife. It is primarily about loving God. So I would say, love your wife as a reflection of your love of Christ. So let, if you want a good marriage, dudes, 
If you want a good marriage, let your relationship with your wife reflect your relationship with the Lord. All right, lightning round. So, after all of that, ladies, wives, you ready to go home and submit to your husband? And husbands, you ready to go love your wife as Christ loved the church? Because that's what it's going to take to enjoy a good marriage. Piece of cake, right? Easy. And you guys are smiling and laughing because you know that there, there, there's no mightier struggle on planet Earth. And we're going to be hard-pressed to do what Colossians 3.18 and what Colossians 3.19 says. We're going to be hard-pressed to do that unless we actually listen and heed the words right before. You have to look at what Paul wrote in the verses leading up to those. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it in points. I'm going to turn into Perry Cotton for a minute. I've I'm I'm got, got four points for you. All right? He likes points. So there's a little, little thing out of Perry's book. All right. I got four Ps. Ready? You want a good marriage? You got to practice the four Ps. First P, you got to put off sin. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Skip down, look at verses 8 and 9. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Got to put it off. So our tendency in marriage is to blame the other person. Well, she's a liar. Well, he's unreasonable. Well, she did this. Well, he did that, right? That's just usually how we operate. And the truth is that while that may be true, you may be married to a liar and a cheat and a hurtful individual. You probably are. Like, I believe it because we're all sinners. And while that may be true, if we're going to have a good marriage, it actually, before going to that person, it has to start with us. It has to begin with us. So I have here a tube of toothpaste. Guess what's in it? Toothpaste. If I squeeze the tube of toothpaste, why does toothpaste come out? Because that's what's in the tube of toothpaste. Oranges don't come out. Little children don't come out of this. Fairies don't come out. It's because it's full of toothpaste. So your spouse will squeeze you. They say something they shouldn't, forgot to take out the trash, whatever the case may be. They did something, and it squeezes you. But what comes out, your spouse didn't put that in there. The whole thing is, you made me angry? False. They didn't make you angry. What do you think the anger was? It's inside of you. So like years ago, like a really, really good friend of mine, he calls me up. Devastated. Because he had crushed his like wife and daughters the night before. He just went on a yelling, screaming tirade at them. And if you know my, my friend Chris, like he's the coolest, calmest cat ever. He always wakes up on the right side of bed. He's, he's, de- he's the nicest, just most genuine, nothing rattles him, just wonderful guy. And the thought 
of him yelling, let alone curses in awfulness at his wife and his daughters. Like, it's, it's befuddling to my mind. But to, and then he's devastated the next day. And what happened was that he had just spent like three months in the worst work season that he had ever experienced. Like, people were getting laid off. The company's about to shut down. He's got more work. He's having to travel every, every other day. He's on planes, and it's just got really, really bad, really, really bad. And it's stressing him and squeezing him. And he's at home one night, and something set him off. And then he went Sam Kennison on his wife and his daughters. So the next day, we're talking on the phone, and he's like, I don't know what happened. That's not me. And I said, Chris, I love you, man, but I'm going to stop you there. That is you. What's in you is you. Like, so I, I love Jamie. She is a sinner. She doesn't do everything perfect. She'll say or do something that might be disappointing or hurtful and vice versa, right? But she, she does. And that's not the problem. The problem isn't what she might say or do. The problem is how I react to it. See, I get angry when she might say something because there's anger in me. I get resentful at something because I'm the one with the pride issue. I get frustrated, annoyed, because I'm the one that's selfish. That's not her problem. That's mine. It's my problem. So before I judge my wife, I need to judge myself. I need to take out the forest of logs and trees out of my eye before focusing on the speck that might be in hers. Like what I need to do in my marriage is always ask the question, what is the problem in my marriage? And there's only one answer, I am. I am the problem in my marriage. And you know what the solution is? I am. Not me. God, I am is his name. He's the great I am. He's I am that I am. He's a almighty, all holy, all powerful, all good, all loving, all gracious, all wise, always faithful God. He is the I, I am. And so what I need is a solution to my sin problem. What I need in my marriage is for I am God almighty to intervene and fix it and change me. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says that it's the Holy Spirit specifically who helps us to put off our sin, to to execute or put to death our, our sin. It's God that does this for us. So the best thing that you can do for yourself, the best thing that you can do for your marriage is to evaluate your life, evaluate your own heart. So don't fixate on your spouse's sin. Focus on yours and confess it and repent. Turn to God and ask for his help to put off from you the wrath, the anger, the selfishness, the pride, the greed, the covetousness, the lust, all of it, to put it away from you. A good marriage begins by putting off your sin. Second P, you got to put on Christ-likeness. So look at verse 12 in the text. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The, the words there, put on, it's not a suggestion, it's a command, it's an imperative. We are commanded and instructed to put on the character of Jesus. Meekness, humility, love, grace, wisdom, to put that on, which implies something. It doesn't happen on its own or by accident. You have to willfully, deliberately, consciously choose each and every day, every moment of every day, to put on the character of Jesus. And you got to do it over and over and over again, constantly, repetitively, all of the time. The reason why is because the character of Jesus falls off of us. So think of little kids, little ones. They go to mommy and daddy's closet. And they get mommy's dress, you know, they get daddy's suit, their shoes, right? And they put it on, they play like dress up. It's all cute, right? And then they start trying to walk in it, and the dress falls off or the jacket falls off. They step out of the shoes. Why? Because it's too big. It falls off. The character of Jesus is too big for us. So we have to keep putting it on because it's always falling off. So what we need is for God to intervene in our life and to mature us and to grow us into the character of Christ so that it fits, so that it stays on more and more and more. If you want a good marriage, you got to replace the sinful behavior, the sinful attire with godly attire. Get rid of the malice, the anger, the pride, the selfishness. Get, take that off. And then put on meekness, love, grace, wisdom. Every day putting it back on. The third P in the text. You got to put up. Look at verse 13. It actually tells us to bear with one another. That means to endure. Bearing with one another. You got to endure. You got to persevere. You got to be faithful in this. What God is telling us in that verse is that, you know what? This is the hardest thing that you will ever do. Right now, you better make up your mind from the get-go that you aren't going to quit, that you're going to fight the good fight, that you're going to finish the race. They're going to, you're going to be hurt. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to think the grass is greener for whatever reason. You're going to think those things, and in those moments, you've got to shut that down because I'm asking you, you've got to bear it. You've got to put up with it, and you've got to do so in grace. And it's a good thing. And, and I do say that you, you need to understand the order of what's happening in the text. Because right before we're told to bear with one another, we're told to put on Christ. The only way that we can be patient with a person who, who just kills our patience is if you first put on Christ. You have to first put on Christ. And then you got a shot at being faithful and persevering and not quitting. And the fourth P is to pardon all. So at the very end of that verse, verse 13, it says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So when your husband hurts you, when your wife hurts you, not if, when, go ahead and decide beforehand, I'm going to forgive him. Because our role as a husband or wife is not to hold a grudge, not to condemn them, not to be resentful. It's not to punish them. Our role is to be merciful as Christ has been merciful to us. The basis of offering forgiveness is the gospel. 
In the New Testament, the word forgiveness uh, that we have in the text is based on the root of the word grace. What that means is that forgiveness is an act of grace. What that means is that forgiveness is not something that you earn or that you deserve. It's something that is freely given and bestowed upon a person. It's just not what God has done for us. Do we deserve the mercy of God? Like if anyone should hold a grudge against us, it's who? It's the Lord because every one of our sins is primarily and first and foremost against the God who created us. But he doesn't treat us as we deserve. He has chosen to be merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving. And those of us who've tasted of the grace, we're changed by it. We're changed into people who can be gracious. Those of us who've been forgiven of sin, we begin this life where we start forgiving others. It's hard, but it, gets, it does get easier with time as you grow in the grace of Christ. And especially, first and foremost, our spouse. But the world can sin against you, and you can forgive them. But if your spouse sins against you, I mean, and we don't forgive them, something is not connecting the way that it should. The person we definitely should forgive first and foremost is the person that God brought us into that covenant with. So if you want a good marriage, you got to put off sin. You got to put on the character of Jesus. You got to decide ahead of time, I'm going to bear with them. I'm not going to quit. In grace, I'm not going to quit. And you got to decide ahead of time, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to forgive, 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 just like Jesus has forgiven me, forgiven me, forgiven me. So I've I love what marriage is. It, it is this beautiful illustration of the gospel. So, like, I mean, just think of marriage. At, one, at some point, a guy decides he wants to get married. And he's in love, and so he chooses her, right? Because he, he loves her. He chooses her. He's like, I want her to be with me forever, right? So he loves her, and he loves her so much that he's willing to pay the cost of a ring. And it might take sacrifice, like working an extra job maybe, or saving, or not being to buy other stuff. Like, I say, because I want to buy a ring, because I love her so much, I want her to be with me. And then comes that moment where he loves her so much that he gets down on one knee. How vulnerable. Don't know what's going to happen. And like with shaking hand, right? Will you? Will you marry me? And she says Yes. Right, and then the work begins. Oh, we got to get flowers, and we got to get food, and we got to get music, and all this stuff goes because there's like this, this festive celebration that's coming. And then that day comes. And I've been there, so it's really neat. You stand in the front of this gathering, and the music starts, and the doors open, and there she is. I mean, she's beautifully like adorned and she's smiling and she's making her way toward you willingly gracious the one the one you've chosen (laughs) the one you've chosen the one you love is saying yes yes i'm coming and so she comes to the forward and forward and then it's just joy and celebration and to become one there was, there was a time where God chose to wed us. Like he loves us, and then he made his love known to us, and he made his love known to us by sending his son. And so Jesus comes, and he kneeled before us, and he proposed. 
And the kneeling of Jesus took place on the cross. The humility. And it was on the cross that then he paid the price of the engagement ring. Look on the cross, he paid the debt. He did everything that was necessary to purchase us out of sin and out of our death and out of darkness. He, he, on the cross, he, he died in order to put our sin away from us. In order to bestow us with his righteous robes. He bore our sin on the cross that we may be forgiven. That we may be pardoned of all our sin. He went to the cross because the day is coming where all who have said yes to his proposal are going to a feast and a banquet and a celebration with an assembly and fanfare, angels. And the church, his bride, is going to be presented before Christ, holy, spotless, beautifully adorned. All who said to Jesus, said yes to Jesus, will be there that day. Basking in the riches of the glories of his grace forever and ever. So if you're here, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, whether you ever want to get married or not, doesn't matter. The most important decision a person will ever make is saying yes to the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And you say yes by believing in him and entrusting your life over to him. By giving your life into the hands of him who has raised his hand, he says, will you? By believing and trusting that he is God who paid for your sin on the cross, raised on the third day from the grave, so that you may be cleansed of all unrighteousness. So have you said yes? Have you said yes to God's love offer to you? Have you said yes? Marriage is this living, breathing picture of the gospel. I do pray for your marriage. I pray for all the marriages that make up Anthem Church. I, I know how hard it is. I, I, it's a struggle. It's difficult. I would say that if you happen to be in a season where your marriage is it's good, kind of safe and sound, all right, could be better, but it's, it's pretty good, what I would say is go get some discipleship on the matter. Think of it as a tune-up for your car or going to the doctor for a regular checkup, a physical. Think of it as preventative. Let's make sure nothing's happening. Let's make sure we're okay. So go to a wedding conference or a wedding, uh, a marriage retreat. Or, or be in a Bible study with other couples and let's talk about marriage. What, what does the Bible say about it? Or if you are in a situation where, I mean, your marriage is in free fall, and it's like that parachute better come quick or it's all over, then I would say with the absolute urgency, that every bit of urgency you can muster, go to discipleship now. And note that I'm not calling it counseling because everyone freaks out over the word counseling. So let's call it what the Bible calls it. It's discipleship. Because you know what the, the parachute is? God's word. God's word is the parachute. The gospel, Jesus that's the parachute. So come to me. You can go to Phil Hart. I'm John Adams. There's others in our church. If you want someone outside the church, there's people I can refer you to for biblical discipleship counseling. But don't wait. Because I know that our church will only be as strong as our marriages. 
Marriage is one of God's new mercies. And so if we're going to enjoy this new mercy, a good marriage, just remember the four things I shared. One, it begins with a daily decision to put off your sin, to put on Christ, to enter each day saying, yep, I'm making the decision. I'm going to bear it. I'm going to bear with him. I'm going to bear with her today. And I'm going to already go ahead and say I'm going to forgive him or her for whatever it is that him or her does today. And if you do those things by the grace of God with his help in your life, you will enjoy a healthy, peaceful relationship with your bride or with your groom. Let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you for a moment to talk about a very serious and difficult topic, Lord, one that um, is beyond a challenge for us. Like, how do we, how do, we do this? How, how do I lead my wife? Or how does a wife love her husband, Lord, in the midst of sin and chaos and the stresses of, of the world, Lord? Like, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. And so we, we ask for your help. Lord, I pray on behalf of all the marriages here, I, I ask that they would be full of grace and love and wisdom and forgiveness, that it would display this gospel, this good news, that it would display the relationship of Jesus with the church. Lord, I help us, please. I, I ask for your divine favor, protection among our, our marriages. Lord, any that are that are hurting and broken, Lord, I ask that you would intervene and just send your spirit for some, some healing there. For those who maybe have gone through a, a bad time and are over it, who have learned from a bad time, Lord, may, may you use them in the life of others to say that there is hope, that the grass is not greener, Lord, to, to stick in it and that it gets better with your help, that it, it's right. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in the room who's never given their life to Christ, that's never said yes to the proposal of the gospel, that they would do so now, Lord. That ultimately, we could have a great marriage here, and if, if we don't have our name written in your book, if we haven't been forgiven of our sins, Lord, it, it's for naught. So, Lord, I pray. I know that the only way, the only chance we have at a healthy, good marriage is if we are in Christ if our faith is in Jesus, if your spirit is dwelling in us, leading and guiding us. Lord, I thank you for what marriage is. It is this beautiful picture of the gospel. It is one of your new mercies, Lord, and I pray that you would help us in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.